appreciate that. Have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. We want to look at verses 24 through 28 this morning. Uh, Take up your cross and follow Jesus. What in the world does that mean? You can't believe the amount of debate, the amount of discussion and disagreement, even among evangelicals here. Lord, I pray that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. And uh, so, Lord, we just wait upon you. You're the ultimate teacher. Uh, Lord, we just pray that our hearts would be attentive. We would have ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Note on the overhead, uh, we are in Matthew, and the theme is Christ the King. And we are still finishing up that section in chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the King. Matthew 16 is a pivotal chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. The spiritual leaders in the nation of Israel have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The nation was fickle, not knowing what to think about Jesus, thinking he was someone special, and yet not recognizing him as the Christ, not recognizing his divine nature, that combination of divine and human in one person. Well, with about six months left in his earthly ministry, Jesus asked the ultimate question, which was the major point of emphasis in his ministry up to this point. He asked, who do men say that I am? And then, more personally to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? This is the ultimate question that everything else builds on. If you don't get that right, doesn't matter what else you have right, you got it wrong. As Jesus told the Jews in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am, I am is God's eternal name as revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, simply means to be the eternal God. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Everything starts there. Peter, under inspiration, properly answered Jesus' question by saying, You are the Christ, the promised anointed one from the Old Testament, the special coming one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who has the very nature of God. Well, that was the right answer. On this rock truth, Christ went on to say that he would build his church in which Peter would have a leading role. But then Jesus went on to tell the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The problem was they did not yet understand the cross work of the Christ. They now understood who he was, but they did not yet understand that he, as the Christ, must go to Jerusalem, where he would be abused by the religious leaders, killed, and then raised the third day. What Jesus then went on to share with them... uh, And as he did so, uh, Peter tried to correct the Lord on this idea of him dying. And that was soundly rebuked for not being mindful of the things of God, as we see in verse 23. Peter did not yet understand the full-orbed plan of God involving both the person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah. First comes the suffering, then the glory. That is the pattern for the Messiah, But there's one more thing they needed to understand. This pattern of suffering and then glory not only applies to the Messiah, but also to all those who would be his disciples. It's great to talk about the kingdom, but how about suffering? They didn't want to hear that message, necessarily. To identify with the Messiah is not only to share in his future kingdom glory, it is also to identify with the truth of his cross. You see, the disciples had been thinking kingdom. And we understand that. They had preached the kingdom is at hand. They had argued over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They were definitely thinking about what they were going to get out of it in the here and now. I mean, the kingdom is at hand after all, as they had been preaching in their thinking. But they were not thinking about a cross to bear in order to get there. This is the great truth that Jesus now shares with them at the end of Matthew 16. Yes, Christ's people are on their way to the kingdom, but it comes by way of a cross. The cross is the way to the kingdom. That is true first and foremost in relation to Christ, 
We owe it all to him and what he did on the cross. But then in a secondary sense, there is application for all of Christ's followers. Now, this is not a problem for true believers who willingly deny self, take up their cross and follow Christ. But for people like Judas, this is a problem. You see, Judas was all in. As long as the kingdom was immediately in view, he was all in for what he could get out of it in the here and now, including what he could get out of the treasure's bag. But this talk of a cross, he wanted nothing of that. He didn't sign up for a cross. Only the kingdom movement. But the truth of the matter is the only way to the kingdom is by way of the cross. And this is what Jesus now shares with his disciples. Yes, he, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, was going to the cross. But there is also a cross to bear for all who would be true followers of his. The way of Christ, the way to the kingdom, is via the way of the cross. Verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, He just got done uh, correcting Peter strongly. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. He's saying, no, 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 you're you're not going to die. In other words, you're not going to the cross. Just got done. But now he's saying, guess what? I have some information for you guys too that relates to a cross. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The parallel passage In Mark chapter 8, 34 through 38, makes it clear at this point that in addition to his disciples, Jesus was also addressing other people who had gathered. In fact, the New American Standard translates it there as multitude and ESV as crowd. So this is a general statement that has broad application as seen in, if anyone. The nuance here would seem to be similar to when Jesus said, to those who claim to believe in him, in John chapter 8, where he said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You see, there are outward disciples who profess on some level. On some level, they are loose-knit followers. But then there are those who are disciples indeed. And this is what Christ goes on to describe. Namely, those who are disciples indeed, those who are true followers. As used by Jesus, to be a true disciple, a disciple indeed, means to be a true believer who is a true follower of Christ. You know, we've come to a point in evangelicalism where you can be a believer and not be a follower of Christ in any way. I mean, it's just, you know, I believe. Well, yeah, even the demons believe. Welcome to the club. I mean, okay, uh, if, a, if a belief doesn't follow, it's not a saving belief. Now, we know very clearly that to be a believer is to be a disciple. From Christ's definitive statement in what is called the Great Commission, as seen at the end of Matthew, everything builds to this Great Commission, which ends the book. After his resurrection, Christ said this, Go therefore and make Believers, no, 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 make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, here is the point. The mission is to make disciples. And having made a disciple, we are to baptize them. As the early church began to carry out this commission, as seen in the book of Acts, the pattern invariably was the people came to be believers, and immediately they were baptized. The point is, they did not wait until later, when supposedly they had come to a deeper level of being a disciple. No. Immediately, believers were considered to be disciples, and therefore immediately they were baptized as Christ instructed in the Great Commission. That is the pattern without exception in the New Testament. So what I'm saying is this. To be a believer results in being a disciple. You're not saved by following. You're saved by believing. But if the faith is real, it will follow. This is the New Testament emphasis. 
which is in perfect keeping with Christ's instruction in the Great Commission. Now, there has been errant teaching that says you can be a believer without being a disciple. But Christ in his Great Commission shows this is absolutely not true. True faith results in you being a true disciple. Now, the word disciple means one who is a believing, learning follower. It's that combination of nuances. Again, we're not saved by following, but true faith follows. Not perfectly, but certainly following Christ is the inevitable fruit of true faith. This is Christ's emphasis in John chapter 10, verse 27, 28, where Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is indicative of Christ's true sheep. They follow me. And what does he do for them? I give them eternal life. Who? The followers who have heard his voice and follow him. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Don't claim verse 28 if verse 27 is not true. It's only those who do verse 27 that can claim verse 28. One commentator calls Matthew 16, 24, and 25 the clearest statement on discipleship in the Bible. Another calls it the strongest statement. And it is perhaps both. I will be strong this morning simply because Jesus is strong. Uh, Should I be weaker than Jesus? (laughs) Well, I'm not Jesus. But uh, uh, we want to make the emphasis that he makes. In verse 24, Jesus lists three interrelated things that are indicative of being true followers of his. He began by saying, if anyone desires to come after me, in other words, if anyone wants to be his follower, here's what is required. Note it is addressed to anyone. The invitation is to anyone. It is in relationship to anyone who desires. You you gotta wanna. This is going to involve a serious commitment. A cross commitment. If anyone desires implies a volitional act. It's a commitment of the will. Last invitation, the Bible emphasizes this very word, desires. Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. But you do have to come. And that's really what is being described here by Christ. If you want to come after him, here's what's involved. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Now, to deny self is not the same as as self-denial. To deny yourself a chocolate craving is a major victory, perhaps. But it is a form of self-denial, but that's not denying self. Not in the sense that Christ is describing. To deny yourself is simply to say no to self. And yes to Jesus. You see, self is the real center of a person's sin life. It is self-centeredness. That's the essence of sin, by the way. We most naturally live for self. We do our self-centered way in contrast to God's way. Is this not what uh, Isaiah said? Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have done what? We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Selfism defines us as sinners. We are self-oriented beings. And we come that way from the womb. We're born sinners. In our natural state, self is at the center of our entire orientation and not Jesus. To deny oneself means to say no to self as the dominant principle of life and yield to Jesus' authority as our ruling principle. In view here is not about denying stuff. It's more fundamental. It's about denying you. It's saying no to self as Lord and saying yes to Jesus as Lord. It's believing on Jesus as my Lord and my God as expressed by Thomas in John 20, 28. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes last day's perilous times, which are characterized by apostasy. These are, these are professing Christians who have a form of godliness, but they deny the lordship, they deny the power, the life-changing power. And the very first thing that Paul mentions in this context of apostasy, the very first thing he mentions is that people will be, you ready for this? Lovers of themselves. Self-love is the essence of all sin and the source from which all the other sinful characteristics arise. Self-love results in desires that consume the soul. In contrast, those who are born again have a whole new orientation, a whole new nature, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside, and that affects our lives. Those that truly belong to the Lord are led by the Spirit, as we find in Romans chapter 8. But notice, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That is a radical transition from self to Jesus, which is being described here in Matthew chapter 16, 24. Here in Matthew 16, 24 is a description of what constitutes a true saving faith, which involves the element of repentance, which means to have a change of mind. In repentance, we change our mind about sin, about self, and about Christ. And that is a radically life-changing reality. This is what Jesus is describing. He is describing the nature of a true saving faith which involves repentance. To truly believe on Jesus as Lord involves a person denying himself. You can't have two masters. You can't have two lords. Which is it going to be? If you're going to say yes to Jesus as Lord, you have to say no to self as Lord. You can't have it your way and God's way at the same time. Repentance is a change of mind that denies self and aligns with God's truth. Now, we are saved by faith alone. But as I have often said, it must be the right kind of faith. And a true saving faith involves denial of self. It will cost you your innate self-willed rebellion. And only the grace of God can bring a person to this point. You don't arrive there without the Holy Spirit working and drawing and moving and convicting and bringing you to this point. No one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. You see, we naturally love self above all else. Now, you might be very self-righteous and say, well, not me. No, 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 not lovable me. Yeah, 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 sorry. We're all in this camp. However, in conversion, there is a denial of self that is a life-changing reality. Properly understood, it's an exchange of all that I am in my natural rebellion, self, selfism, for all that Christ is as Lord and Savior. He is our all, as the Bible says. Christ is all and in all, Colossians chapter 3. And self is always the issue. In order to get to heaven, we must get over self. I kind of like that line, get over yourself. We must deny ourselves, and denying self involves taking up a cross. As described by Jesus, denying self and taking up our cross go together with the inevitable outcome being that of following him. Now, some combination of denying self, taking up our cross, and following Christ is a dominant, recurring theme in the teaching of Jesus. Uh, note, I put it up. We're not going to cover all these. But all the way through the Gospels, you see this recurring dominant theme. All these passages deal with the concept of death to self and following Christ. All these passages use similar terminology. Jesus clearly links these parallel concepts to salvation slash discipleship. Now, some have tried to say that salvation does not necessarily have a direct relationship with discipleship. But clearly what Jesus had to say contradicts this. In Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler came clearly wanting to know how he could have eternal life. 
I mean, that's how he approaches Jesus. That's the basis, the whole basis for this interaction. In effect, Jesus told him he would have to exchange his God of materialism for the Lordship of Christ. There would have to be a denial of self and an embracing of Christ for who he is as Lord. He would have to make the great exchange from having self as his God to having Jesus as his God. And so here's what Jesus said. Note the terminology. What did Jesus say to him? Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Sound familiar? This language of take up the cross and follow me is the very same type of language Jesus used in all these other parallel passages. And here in Mark 10, the issue is undeniably that of eternal life. The Jews knew full well that the idea of taking, what the idea of taking up a cross meant. You know what a cross meant? Execution. It meant death for self. The Romans customarily compelled someone condemned to death by crucifixion to carry their cross. Doing so gave public testimony that this person was now under submission to the rule of Rome, which he had previously rebelled against. So the idea of taking up a Roman cross implied the recognition of Rome's ruling authority. Bearing a Roman cross signified submission to the authority behind the cross. Likewise, taking up our cross and following Christ is an acknowledgement that we have yielded to his authority. Our denying self is a death to self in view of the sovereign authority of Christ. Now, I want you to note this. This is significant. There are three verbs in this little verse, verse 24. Deny is an aorist imperative. Aorist means fact of action, decisive action. Take up is aorist imperative, decisive action. And follow is present imperative, continuing action. The sense is that denying self and taking up our cross involves a decisive act or commitment which results in following Christ as a way of life. David Gazik says, in these 20 centuries after Jesus, we have done a pretty good job in sanitizing and ritualizing the cross. Yet Jesus said something much like this, walk down death row daily and follow me. Taking up your cross wasn't a journey, it was a one-way trip. There was no return ticketing. It was never a round trip. What Jesus is describing is an all-in commitment, a way of the cross commitment. A true saving faith commitment to Christ is a once-for-all commitment till death do me part. Charles Ryrie said, allegiance even to death is demanded of Christ's followers. And again, Gazik says, death to self is a radical command in the Christian life. To take up your cross meant one thing. You were going to certain death and your only hope was in the resurrection power. Note this. This decisive act of denying self and taking up our cross does not mean we are from here on out going to follow as we should. You know something? You can be disobedient to your master. The great challenge of the Christian life is to now live more and more consistent with the truth that we have come to know and bow before. And we can be very inconsistent. We sometimes joke that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it too often wants to crawl off the altar. It's worth noting that between the great chapter of Romans 6, which emphasizes being dead to sin, and the great chapter of Romans chapter 8, which emphasizes being empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the in-between chapter of Romans chapter 7, which deals with the reality of our great struggle with the flesh. Now, which is true? Chapter 6, chapter 8, or chapter 7? I submit to you, they're all true. And yet, even in Romans 7, we note that the the very sin that Paul wrestles with, he hates. 
signifying that indeed there has been a decisive commitment that has forever altered his life, his relationship with sin, his attitude towards sin. Part of the evidence of salvation is that we now hate the very sin we struggle with. And if you don't hate it, it's because you're not saved. This too is part of following Christ as a way of life. Obviously, a new believer does not begin to even understand all the ramifications of the truth he has come to believe is found in Jesus. But if he or she is a true believer, they have bowed before the truth of Christ as Lord and Savior, and they now have a new nature in combination with the Holy Spirit that desires to obey. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commands. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Not perfectly, but we desire to obey. Yes, we struggle with the flesh, but the reality of a decisive faith commitment will continue to demonstrate itself in perseverance in the faith. Someone has well said that there's a distinct difference between Judas and Peter. You see, Peter had a bad day, but Judas had a bad heart. You know what Jesus said to Peter? The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. But catch that, the spirit was willing. I mean, when they came to get Jesus, Peter's the one with the sword. I mean, he was all in. There was no doubt about where he stood. Peter came through it. Judas did not. Peter did end up literally dying for the Lord while Judas died in his sin. What Jesus is saying is this. Uh, Let me put up a paraphrase. This is my paraphrase. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, that is, be my disciple. They must say no to self. That's repentance. And yes to my ruling lordship authority, take up his cross, which is then demonstrated in following me as a way of life. This is descriptive of the nature of a true saving faith. And the fruit of following that comes from it. Now, let me just pause for a little bit. I have studied this for many years. Uh, What I'm telling you is my studied view. You say, well, you're not the only one. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I'm not. But I have a deep conviction here. In the evangelical world, there are two distinctive views when it comes to Matthew 16, 24. There is what I call the easy believism view, and there is what I call the lordship view. Now, all agree that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a hill to die on. Nobody in our circles disagrees with that. But here's the distinction. Easy believism says you can accept Christ as Savior while rejecting Him as Lord. That's why I also call this view the Lordless Gospel, which I consider to be a false gospel. Easy believism makes a hard distinction between being a believer and being a disciple. Saying one can be a believer without ever becoming a disciple without ever becoming a follower of Christ. Now, in contrast, I hold to what is called the lordship position. This says, in saving faith, a person accepts Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And this is a package. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Never in his ministry does Jesus advocate a two-tier model of believer and disciple. I would challenge you to find it. Uh, You have to go through all kinds of contortions of theology to end up with that view, which those in the easy believism camp have done. The Lordship view sees Matthew 16, 24 as describing a saving faith commitment that recognizes Christ as Lord. Taking up your cross is recognition of the lordship authority of Christ. Now, we're not always consistent. We begin immature. We mess up. 
We have times of rebellion. All that's true. But it doesn't change the fundamental recognition that I have come to acknowledge Christ as my sovereign authority. This taking up your cross is really the equivalent of what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Taking up the cross is all about lordship. It's all about calling on the name of the Lord. You're recognizing him for who he is. Christ is describing a saving faith commitment that recognizes him for who he is as Lord. Verse 24 is further explained by verses 25 through 27. If there's any doubt. Uh, Note verses 25 through 27 each begin with the explanatory word for, showing the further development of the thought started in verse 24. He says in verse 25, for, building on what he has just said, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Life is psyche in the Greek. uh, The Greek term covering both English concepts of life and soul. Whoever chooses to save his life for self. You know, it's just all about me. Whoever chooses to save his life for self will end up losing it. In contrast, whoever loses their life by denying himself and taking up his cross and following Christ, as Jesus says here in verse 25, for my sake, we'll find it. In the end, there are two kinds of people. There are those who live for self and in the end lose everything. And there are those who die to self and live for Christ and in the end have everything as joint heirs with Christ. It's really pretty simple. Who are you ultimately living for? If it's purely for self, then you're not saved. True believers live for Jesus. Some more faithfully than others, but all true believers have some fruit. Certainly they have a changed heart and they are new creations in Christ. Certainly he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Certainly all of God's children are disciplined by him unless they're illegitimate. And he builds holiness into their lives. Certainly all are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Again, David Gazik says, we must follow Jesus this way because it's the only way that we will ever find life. It sounds strange to say, you will never live until you first walk to your death with Jesus. But that's the idea. You can't gain resurrection life without dying first. The whole flow of thought here in Matthew 16 is all about who Jesus is and his claim on our life. The great issue is who he is, which is followed up by how does one become a true disciple? Jim Elliott was right when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jesus continues with another four. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus here asks two rhetorical questions. He asks, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And the obvious answer is that in the end, this profits a person nothing. 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You can't take anything with you. I don't care how much stuff you have if you're the world's richest man and, you you know, it doesn't matter. In the end, if you're clinging to this life and what it has to offer, you're going to lose everything. In the book of Revelation, a technical term for unbelievers is earth dwellers, used 10 times. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 shows that loving the world and the things of the world is that which defines the world. But as Jesus will go on to show, those that lose their life by denying self and living for Jesus will have an eternal reward in the kingdom. You can't take anything with you, but you can send it on ahead. It's interesting, 
that similarly, the devil tried to offer Jesus the kingdom without the cross. He tried to tempt him with everything this world has to offer by bypassing the cross. Remember what he said to Jesus in Matthew 4? Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, he said to him, all these things I will give you. You have all the stuff. All, this, all that the world has to offer. If you will fall down and worship me. Remember, this is a temptation. <laughs> this is the devil throwing everything he's got at Jesus. The old line of the devil is that you can have your best life now. If you will just do things his way. Christ's way is that the best of everything is offered in the kingdom. But it first comes by way of the cross. That's Christ's way. The cross first, then the glory. That was true for Christ in a unique way, and it's also true for his followers in a secondary sense. But here's what he offers us on the other side. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Revelation 21, 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It is pointed out the exact parallel of Christ's question here in Matthew 16, 26a is found in the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. And to cut to the chase, here's what Jesus said in this parable. You know, this wealthy man, he's laying up everything for himself and saying to himself, uh, take that easy, drink and be merry. You know, I'm going to continue just to, to bask in my wealth here. But then it goes on, Luke 12, 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have uh, many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The second rhetorical question in Matthew 16, 26 asks what? Can a man give in exchange for his soul? In the end, what can we offer God in exchange for our soul? Of course, the answer is absolutely nothing. To start with, we have nothing of value to offer. What are you going to bring to God? Well, I'm going to bring in my good works. You mean those, uh, those that are soiled and tainted, uh, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags? Uh, those? Uh, you're going to offer up those and try to make a deal with God on that basis? We have nothing to offer. Second, a soul is of infinite value. So valuable that only the blood of Jesus can purchase it. If you think you're going to wheel and deal with God and somehow spring your soul in the end, think again. Consider this haunting rhetorical question. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What are you going to do? What's the deal you're going to work with God for your soul? I like this, especially as the NIV translated it here in Psalm 49.8. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. One great exception, right? One great, what's the great exception? No payment is ever enough except the payment of Jesus. There you go. J.C. Ryle said, the first step towards heaven is to find out the worth of your soul. Your soul is valuable. So valuable that the son of the eternal living God came to earth on a rescue mission to die for you. Ryle meant by this, we must discover that our soul is of infinite worth and that the only way our soul can be saved is by the singular way that God has provided. Namely through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and through faith in Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver, gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's nothing we can give in exchange for our souls. And yet, and yet, paradoxically, in context, Christ, in the spirit of come now and let us reason together, 
is presenting the possibility of a paradoxical exchange whereby we die to self and thereby find our life for all eternity in Him. This is the only exchange that God will honor. Saying no to self and yes to Him. Denying self in order to find our life in Him. Losing our life that we might find it in Him. To put it directly in Christ's words, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Moody Bible Commentary, nothing can be given in exchange for one's soul. Therefore, if one wishes to preserve his life, paradoxically, it must be given up to follow Christ. What Jesus is presenting is the only possible way to the kingdom. You can't have the kingdom without the cross. That is true in relationship to Christ's cross work, but also in relation to the necessity of a saving faith commitment, which involves the element of repentance. Paul described it this way. Notice uh, Paul's conversion testimony. What things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. I had to give up on all this stuff. To have the great exchange, I had to count everything lost that I might have Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain the great exchange, counted all this loss that I might gain Christ. In order to have this exchange, I had to count everything lost. It had to be a cross experience. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul denied self and took up his cross in counting all things loss and exchanged that for faith in Christ as his Lord. It cost him everything, so to speak, and yet in exchange he gained everything, namely Christ and the righteousness which is from God by faith. This is what I call the exchanged life. We exchange all that we are in our selfism for all that he is as Lord and Savior. There's nothing you can do to give an exchange for your soul, and yet paradoxically, you can exchange your self-life for his. Thus, Christ offers us the exchange life on the condition of denying self, taking up your cross, and following him. So does this mean then that the person who denies himself takes up his cross and follows Christ loses out somehow? No. He may lose out on what this life has to offer in some respects, but he will be rewarded in the kingdom. With Christ losing our life and following him results in gaining it all for all eternity. In the exchange life, we not only have eternal life, but we have an eternal reward for following him. And so that's where Jesus goes, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will will reward each according to his works. Now we sing a song that says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. As rewards in context are promised in relation to those who follow him. He describes himself as the Son of Man, a messianic title as coming in the glory of his Father with his angels. He shares in the same glory as the Father, which testifies of his deity. And speaking as the Son of Man, the subject of the sentence, the angels are spoken of as being his angels, once again showing his deity as only God owns and uses angels according to his prerogative. And when he comes, he will reward each according to his works. This serves as an incentive for taking up one's cross and following him. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. The language of rewarding each one according to his works comes from Psalm 62, 12 and Proverbs 24, 12. There we find that God rewards his people commensurate with how they have served him. John Walford says, For the world there is an immediate gain but ultimate loss. For the disciple... There is immediate loss, but ultimate gain. Following is the fruit of true faith and will be rewarded. And it's characteristic of true believers. This is what Christ says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's the issue, shall enter the kingdom. 
Just saying it, that's not going to get you there. But who's going to go? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This defines true believers. They do the will of the Father. John 8, John 5, 28, 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. This is what characterizes true, true faith. This is in the, the gospel of John, the gospel of belief. And those who have done evil, characteristic of unbelievers, to the resurrection of condemnation. John MacArthur says, Righteous deeds are not the source of salvation, but they are the objective verification that it has occurred. And it will be rewarded. Prophetically, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And then Jesus in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. And then as a further statement of assurance, Jesus made this claim in verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, some have considered this an awkward statement that just doesn't fit smoothly here. But actually, I contend that it does. Some have tried to apply it in a spiritual sense to the church, which came into being after the resurrection which they claim now is a spiritual form of the kingdom. Just one problem. Matthew never uses the kingdom in that sense. The kingdom throughout is the same messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament that would literally come to earth in a physical sense. The correct view is that the transfiguration described in chapter 17 is what is in view. It was in this transfiguration that some of the disciples would get a preview of the coming kingdom. They would literally see it in that sense. And there are three reasons to think this is the proper view. Number one, in all three synoptic gospels, meaning the similar gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three in the context of Jesus making this statement immediately have the event of the transfiguration following. Number two, it was accurately fulfilled in that some standing there, not all, but some standing there saw it, That is, in Peter, James, and John, as we see in the next chapter. And then finally, the most powerful argument is the Apostle Peter, who was there at the Transfiguration, referred to this event as actually seeing the coming of our Lord. Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, 16 through 18, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming. What coming? Second coming, coming to his kingdom. The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That is the Mount of Transfiguration. So thus, the Mount of Transfiguration has been called a preview of, of the coming kingdom on earth. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to go to the kingdom as a preview. We're going to go to Matthew 17. What assurance such a foretaste of coming kingdom glory would give you? I mean, you could die with that. And Peter did. It so affected Peter that he never got over it and testified of of it in his last letter to reaffirm the reality of his testimony. Well, let me make this application. In one of the Napoleon Wars, Lord Nelson defeated the French Navy. The defeated admiral brought his flagship ship alongside Nelson's vessel and went aboard to make his surrender. He approached Nelson smiling with his sword swinging at his side. He held out his hand to the victor. Nelson made no response to this gesture. But said quietly, your sword first, sir. Laying down the sword was a visible token of surrender. 
In like manner, we must lay down the sword of our rebellion and self-will. And the illustration Christ used was that of a cross. You say, well, I'm coming to Christ with all my rebellion. Oh, no, no, no. You don't understand the nature of saving faith, which is what the whole debate is about. We must deny self and take up our cross, acknowledging submission to his sovereign rule. Henceforth, his will more and more becomes the rule of our lives as we follow him. We grow in relationship to the truth that we have come to understand. George Matheson said, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer be. Well, let me ask you, who are you living for? Yourself or for Christ? You can't have it both ways. As Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You call Jesus Lord? You're either going to serve self as your master or Christ as your master. Who will the master be? Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so he invites, deny yourself. If anyone wants to come after me, if you want to be a true follower, a true disciple, a disciple indeed, take up your cross and follow him. And then as he said to the rich young ruler, and you will have treasure in heaven. Thus in losing your life, you will find it. You will make the great exchange that has promise of everlasting life and everlasting reward in the kingdom. And so Christ invites. He invites to come on his terms. Namely, receiving him for who he is and for what he has done. In the gospel, we have two great truths. Christ as our Savior died for all of our sins. He was buried. And then as Lord, he rose again the third day. That's the gospel we believe. And it's personalized. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God, when he saw the risen Christ. And Jesus said, Thomas, you have seen and believed. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. Have you believed in him as your Savior, as your risen Lord, your God Master? The Bible says now is the accepted time. Let's stand and have our closing song.